scripture today comes from Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Listen now for the word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent along their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are honest and teach the way of God according to the truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard the face of anyone. So tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said to them, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image? is on this coin, and whose title, Tiberius, Caesar, August, and divine son of Augustus, the high priest. And they answered, the emperors. And he said to them, hmm, well, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. And give to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were stumped. And they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. On one level, the Pharisees were exactly right. If anything, Jesus was brutally honest. And he did not pander to people of power. Only a day or two before, he had overturned tables and benches in the temple. He called leaders names in public. Hypocrites. Blind fools, brood of vipers, thieves. Seriously, I wonder if any of us would have been willing to follow Jesus after such a display. He clearly was not raised in the South. I mean, at least the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians approached Jesus like civilized people, even complimenting him, at least on the face of it. If there was anything that made religious people uncomfortable in Jesus' day, it was the question of taxes and loyalty to Caesar. There was perhaps no more divisive topic. On the one hand, Caesar and the Roman Empire claimed to be the source of global peace and prosperity. They provided roads that Joe Eberly showed us in his presentation 
uh, on Spain today. And other structural improvements, they maintained order, allowed local religious practices to continue, and even worked with religious leaders and the wealthy elite to provide local jobs and oversight. On the other hand, the quickest way to say goodbye to that same peace and prosperity was to appear disloyal or a threat to Rome. Many people then, as now, resented paying any kind of tax. And you can imagine how much more it stung knowing that tax was used to support the very army that would burn your temple to the ground without a second thought if they thought you needed reminding of who was in charge. Not to mention the religiously offensive claims of the emperor, that he was the divine son of the high priest. It said so right there on that coin used to pay the tax. For many faithful Jews, that coin itself threatened to violate the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Wasn't paying tribute to Caesar in effect, bowing down before someone who claimed to have godlike powers? On the face of it, Jesus was trapped. However he responded, he was bound to disappoint or even infuriate people of power and influence. The Herodians would report any hint of disloyalty to Rome, and Jesus could be pursued as a dangerous fomenter of rebellion. The Pharisees would use any hint of acquiescence to Rome to undermine Jesus' popularity as a prophet in solidarity with the poor. Peace and idolatry, or justice, righteousness, and sedition. They put it to Jesus and asked him to choose. But Jesus puts the question back to them. Just what is it that belongs to Caesar? And what is it that belongs to God? How you answer that question depends a lot on which one you put first, God or Caesar. If you start with what belongs to Caesar... Well, you might say that everything and everyone from the British Channel to Northern Africa, from the Euphrates River to the Atlantic Ocean, certainly all the Roman currency, the army, all the new infrastructure, arguably all their leaders, religious or otherwise, belonged to Caesar. Well, then paying the tax is a no-brainer. But if you start with God, well, what doesn't belong to God. As Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Certainly each person made in the image of God belongs to God, even more so than the coins stamped with Caesar's image belonged to him. And if Caesar demanded loyalty, obedience, and a hefty amount of taxes, what did God require? Well, we've already said it once this morning, courtesy of the prophet Micah. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Carl gave us a great testimony about faithfulness. And Arthur gave us a great testimony about ministries of mercy. 
And then there's justice. Jesus says it again in Matthew 23, accusing the Pharisees of giving God a tenth of their spices, but neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But what did that mean in terms of one's relationship to Rome? Jesus does not give them or us easy answers. Indeed, scripture lifts up a number of models for doing justice. Sometimes it looks like breaking the law and lying about it. Hebrew midwives refusing to kill Hebrew boys. For Moses, it looks like making unreasonable demands of Pharaoh, at least from Pharaoh's perspective, then leading a mass exodus of fed-up, exploited workers and their families. Esther did it by influencing her husband from inside the royal court. In Nehemiah, it looked like a large assembly of people gathering to give voice to their complaints and demand specific commitments for change from the nobles and their leaders. A few prophets called their leaders out privately, like Nathan to King David, but most did so publicly in writing, speech, or symbolic action, including Jesus. But Jesus also did justice by treating those without power as if they were equally as important as those who had it. The apostles sought justice by creating an alternative community of equality who shared everything. There's no one model for doing justice in scripture, but there is a clear pattern of God calling people to seek it, especially on behalf of the powerless. And it always, almost always involves risk, confrontation, and tension. If you've read the October Messenger, then you have heard that the Global Outreach and Peacemaking Committee, with the approval of the session, is inviting the whole congregation into a discernment process over the next few months to consider how we might answer God's call to do justice, not only as individuals, but as a congregation. That process begins in earnest next Sunday with an opportunity to hear from leaders from three area churches about why they and their congregations have chosen to work together for justice through iCare, the Interfaith Coalition for Action, Reconciliation, and Empowerment. Whatever your knowledge or experience, I encourage you to come to that class so we can learn more and discuss it together. An important part of any Christian discernment process is to listen for God's guidance in Scripture. When I listen to today's gospel, I do not hear Jesus giving us an easy answer to our question about whether or not to join with the other congregations involved in eye care. Jesus does not give a clear yes or no about paying Caesar's tax. What he does do is direct them and us to examine our priorities, which should lead us to consider first what it is that God requires. Now, a common reaction to the invitation to work for justice is to say, you know, I, I think that's a great idea, but that's just not my kind of thing. But what I hear in Jesus' response to the tax question 
is that just as we cannot say that some parts of our lives belong to God and others do not, neither can we say that some congregations are called to care about justice and others are not. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness are continually lifted up as essential tenets of our faith. They are the priorities required of each of us and of all of us together. God may not dictate in scripture exactly what that will look like for us today in Jacksonville, but I think God is very clear that we must be pursuing it somehow. And if we discern together that joining iCare is not the best or most effective way to pursue justice here, then we must continue our discernment until we find a better way. The choice before us is not whether or not to do justice, but how. And it's not my decision to make. Even so, I've been thinking a lot about why engaging this question of justice matters so much to me when I personally experienced very little injustice myself. Why is it worth the discomfort of asking hard questions and having difficult conversations? Why is it worth risking disappointing or even offending people? Why is it worth risking being disappointed myself? One of the things that I care often asks its members to think about is when was the first time that you became aware of an injustice? When this question has come up at meetings that included members from many different congregations, my own privilege has been glaringly obvious to me. I have not had the experience of being forbidden to use a public toilet or refused service in a restaurant. I have not been followed in stores or been afraid of the police because of the color of my skin. No, I grew up going to an independent school that my grandfather helped start in the early 70s so that his own children could be guaranteed a good education during the chaos of integration. For a long time, though, all I knew was that there were only two African Americans in our K-12 school and that I wasn't very happy there. When I moved in 10th grade to a public school that was half white and half African American, I noticed that there wasn't much interaction between the white and black students. My honors classes were about as white as they had been in the independent school. In the 11th grade, I moved to a magnet boarding school in Mobile to get the best, I thought, of both worlds. A first-rate education, but still public. It was less diverse than my public school in Dothan had been, but way more integrated. We ate together, we lived in the dorms together, we took classes together. If you had asked me about racial tension, I would have been confused. On the face of it, everything was fine. Until, that is, the literary magazine which I edited was distributed on campus. The African-American students and staff were enraged, tearing one page in particular out of their magazines and demanding a public apology from me for printing it. The offending page was a drawing of a lynching done by a white student in my AP art class. The original title of the piece was Who Has Really Fallen Here? And it was meant to be a scathing indictment of that shameful part of our Southern history. 
It was meant to be anti-racist, but our teacher had encouraged her to simplify the title to The Hanging and to let the art itself communicate her intentions. Unfortunately, this had the effect of making the drawing like a Rorschach inkblot test, and what was projected onto it by the African-American students and staff was their painful experiences of racism and injustice. At the time, though, the artist and I thought we were the victims of injustice. No one had come to ask either of us about the piece and its meaning. People had assumed the worst about our intentions and had reacted without doing any research. They were the ones who should be apologizing to us, we thought. And my artist friend quickly posted signs on campus describing her intentions for the piece and how unjust the reaction was. The faculty arranged a community forum where all who wished could come and talk about what they were thinking and feeling. Well, what was the point of that, I thought. I knew the truth, which was that I was right and they had been mistaken. An unfortunate occurrence, sure, but now that the truth was out, what was there to discuss? And so I found an excuse not to go to that meeting. It may very well be the biggest regret of my life so far. Because the truth is that I didn't go to that meeting because I was terrified of the tension that would be in that room. I was terrified of their pain and their anger. I was terrified of confrontation. Already the illusion of the peace and racial harmony I had thought existed at the school had been shattered, and I did not want to look at what might have taken its place. Graduation, after all, was just a few days away, and then all of this would just be a bad memory with no real consequences for me personally. But what I missed was the invitation to enter into another's pain. What I missed was the chance to listen to someone else's experience that was totally different from my own. It floors me now to think that I was not even curious about what experiences might have caused them to interpret that drawing so differently or react to it so strongly. I missed the opportunity to move toward reconciliation and real relationship because I couldn't bear to endure a little tension. No wonder I felt so far from God upon entering college. On the face of it, I wanted to be in right relationship with those who were different from me. But when confronted with the tension that those differences caused, I took one look at that mess and brokenness and ran the other way. As much as we might loathe tension or shy away from confrontation, the reality is that the choice between peace and justice is a false one. The Hebrew word for shalom assumes both. The Greek word for justice is the same as the word for righteousness. Both peace and justice require right relationships. But the good news is that we have a God who will stop at nothing to right relationships and who promises to be with us as we seek them. The good news is that our God is well acquainted with the mess and brokenness and tension that come with relationships. Jesus walked right into the middle of those again 
and again and again. And that's the body that we've been baptized into. Peter and Aiden, you and me, Woodlawn Presbyterian and Greater Bethany Baptist, one Lord, one body. Another bit of good news is that the Pharisees were wrong about Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus regarded the face of no one. It was that he regarded the face of everyone equally. Caesar, Samaritan, hemorrhaging woman, child. It's what gave him the courage to confront the leaders of his day, as well as the compassion to heal the suffering, eat with sinners, and welcome the outcast. And so whatever situation we enter into, whatever difficult conversation, we can do that with the full knowledge that whether they are members of the church with whom we disagree, those who lack the power to influence policy to their advantage, or the mayor himself, the person with whom we are speaking is a child of God, no more and no less. And I have confidence that if we continue to remind each other of whose we are and whose image is stamped on our very being and sealed in our baptism, our efforts will bear good fruit, no matter how we decide to live out God's larger, deeper call to do the hard relational work of justice, reconciliation, and peacemaking, which cannot ultimately be separated.